Welcome back to You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Young Pastors. I'm Ray Ortland. I'm with my friend Sam Alberry, and we're glad you're listening in. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Now, we're going to think our way through 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 in this episode. We're going right through the book of 2 Timothy. Sam, in your view, why does 2 Timothy matter to pastors today? It's a it's a field guide for pastoral ministry and and Paul so obviously lived in the same world that we do so whatever we're facing into in our in our churches Paul had anticipated it it's not antique distant and remote it's not just a relic mm. this is perennially relevant mm. it's true to life it's an honest book it's a it's a book that helps me see myself and understand pastoral ministry in realistic categories that are simultaneously hopeful. Hmm. And that's what just about every pastor needs all the time. And toward the end of our time together, Sam and I want to bring to your attention and commend to you a book about preaching, because Paul says in this passage, preach the word. Hmm. And Crossway has provided for all of us a terrific new book on expositional preaching that you will want to be aware of. Well, Ray, welcome, uh, welcome back, everyone. Ray, good to see you. Good to see you, Sam. So, Ray, you you let slip just before the recording began that you had made a promise to Jenny not to buy a book for three months. How's that going? <laughs> it's just, this is killing me. I mean, I, I, there's. You <laughs> have know, you caved yet? Actually, I have not, because you just gave me a book. I know, you... but I ordered that before I made the promise okay. to Jenny. Yeah. And and I did slip in one final purchase before the promise uh, kicked in. And so <laughs> technically I have kept my word. Okay. Any yeah. any particular ones where you've had to show unusual restraint? Anything you've, oh, you've been tempted by? Every single by? one. And so my my wish list at Amazon is is growing rapidly, but yeah, I'm trying to be restrained. Is that because you've got a lack of space in the house for books? Or? That is part of it. I have literally run out of shelf space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I find myself giving books away to create space for the mm. new books I'm buying. What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> Nothing. I'm sometimes the person you give books away to. So I'm, <laughs> I'm encouraging this. Yeah. Great. Um, Ray, we're, we're back in, in Second Timothy. We're in chapter four now. It's a it's a relatively well-known part of the letter. Um, mm-hmm. Paul is is really giving us a heavy task to consider. Yeah. Um, what are your initial thoughts? Well, uh, I'm just looking at John Stott here as he makes an observation about the chapter in its totality. He says, This chapter contains some of the very last words spoken or written by the Apostle Paul. They are certainly the last which have survived. He is writing within weeks, perhaps even within days, of his martyrdom. Hmm. So there is nothing about Second Timothy in general, and chapter 4 in particular, that is uh, a throwaway line. Uh, everything has a, a, a glorious dignity, hmm. solemnity, and finality about it. Hmm. So he's not wasting his breath at any level. Hmm. Everything he says here, we can sit and, and, and stare at Second Timothy chapter 4 with rapt attention, yeah. and we will not waste our time, because Paul was not wasting his time. 
It's very striking. I mean, Paul will come on. We'll come onto this in a moment. Paul is giving us indications. He's he's nearly at the end of his course. Other than Paul occasionally mentioning his chains, you wouldn't really know this was a letter written from prison. Hmm. Paul seems so kind of calm and stable, and so little of this letter would be any different if Paul wasn't in jail. I mean, it's the same. The task for Timothy is the same. His advice to Timothy. Wow. It's not full of self-pity or, guys, I'm in here unjustly, you know, right, let's start a letter-writing campaign to Caesar. He, he's he's not lost a plot at all. That is fascinating. I don't think I've ever thought of it that way before. The man knows who he is. He knows who his Savior is. He knows what the times call for. And he's not angry. He's not. There he, is a sense. so calm, isn't it? Yeah, even a sense of privilege. Yeah. Gratitude, a sense of finality, of satisfaction. I mean, properly defined, a sense of success. Yeah. I have finished the course. I've run the race and so forth. Fascinating. I'm struck. We, we were just finishing up chapter three, and obviously the, the chapter divisions are a later insertion, so it's easy to sort of imagine Paul finished chapter three and went for a walk and had a weekend away and then came back to start right. chapter four. But actually... Yeah. He's just been talking about how scripture is God-breathed, it's profitable, it equips us for every good work. That flows straight into this charge to preach the word. This yes. is this is not a new subject. This is the this is the application of what he's just ah, been saying. If that is good. what scripture is, yeah. hey, preach the word. Yeah. But he doesn't just say, Timothy, you know, don't forget to preach. He he kind of layers it with this a very sort of solemn you know, charge. I am so struck by that. He says in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I mean, Paul layers in the most august and eternal and glorious considerations. Mm -hmm. he, he looks Timothy right in the eyes, as it were, but he's also aware he is speaking in the presence of the King of Kings. Sam, I remember in 1984 when we were living in Scotland, Billy Graham was visiting Britain and one Sunday morning preached in a church where the Queen was attending the worship service. And that afternoon, this was on the news, that afternoon someone, a reporter, asked him, what was it like to preach in the presence of the Queen? And Billy wisely said, every time I preach, I'm in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's not disrespectful to the Queen. She would affirm that. Yes, and but he had this sense of, it's as if, this very thin veil of phenomena concealing heaven from us, concealing eternity from us, concealing the throne of God from us, is, is made transparent or even removed. And Paul can see mm -hmm. what's really going on here. Yeah. And he's not looking at the walls of his prison. No. He is by faith looking beyond that. And he is in the presence of God mm. and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and kingdom, everything is on the line here. And what is Timothy to do with that? Yeah. But preach the word. Yeah, what he says there about Christ Jesus, to judge the living and the dead, and who will, you know, through his appearing and kingdom, has been specifically chosen, because 
this is why we preach the word. Hmm. It is precisely because Jesus will judge the living and the dead. The, the most pertinent thing we can be doing in the light of that judgment to come, in the light of where everything is going, there's nothing more significant than preaching the word. Yes. I, you and I revere this profoundly. Every pastor listening, this really resonates with all of us, doesn't it? Mm. And it's so wonderful, so uplifting and strengthening just to stand back and remember what we are doing. Yeah. We're pursuing our calling of pastoral ministry, not just in relation to a congregation and a community, but we're doing this in the, in the sight of God, in the presence of God. And we love those people in the congregation. We love those people in the community. But something more glorious, more profound, more uplifting. So we can be so disheartened by what we see here below. Mm. We've seen that throughout Second Timothy. Mm. There is so much that just takes the heart out of us and would break our will and, and cause us just to lie down and die. Yeah. But we are not going to do that because something else is going on here, something more, far more glorious, far more wonderful. And the presence of God is never going away, never changing. He will never leave us uh, nor forsake us. We will always be in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus as we pursue our pastoral ministry. I'm struck as well. There's, there's an immediate juxtaposition between what is obvious in the light of heaven, uh, then being on earth something people are oblivious to because sort of immediately Paul talks about preaching in season and out of season. So although mm -hmm. in the light of heaven it's obvious that we preach the word, to those on earth it isn't. Um, people are not going to be in the mood for this. Yes. This is not market driven. There's not going to be a, you know, it's not as if earth is aware of the coming of Christ and of his judging the living and the dead and therefore the, the world is, is saying, you know, well, Hey, we need the we need the truth. We need the word of God. Um, we're we're going to come up against disinterest. We're going to come up against an, antipathy and opposition. And people are not going to be in the mood for this. And just indifference. Yeah, I remember um, reading, uh, and I can't pull the name up right now, but there was a skeptical philosopher living in London, nineteenth century, who would sometimes go to church to hear Spurgeon preach. Hmm. And one of his friends asked him, so I'm going to church. Why are you going there? You don't believe that. And the man replied, but Spurgeon does. Wow. And he was willing to go listen to that man because he believed the gospel. Hmm. That spirit of faith, that sense of the presence of God and of Christ, hmm. that is what makes a man's voice prophetic yeah. and can crack open hearts that would otherwise be indifferent. I'm struck as well, Ray. Paul talks about, in verse 2, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Um, it's not just what we're to do, but how we are to do it. He, he adds complete patience. So we're not to be frustrated at the lack of, you know, at times the total lack of interest in what we're yes. trying to communicate from God's word. Um, we're to be patient, completely patient. Wow. That's a rebuke to me. You know, sometimes I, I along the way, I think I, I, I have been exasperated at the incomprehension, slowness of response, and so forth. And that's completely inappropriate. Jesus wasn't like that with me. He was completely patient and has been. He continues to be at mm -hmm. this moment. 
Sam, I should be so much further down the road by now. Hmm. I thought that by this time in my life, I would be way more sanctified than I am. I'm basically still a teenager. And the Lord is completely, Sam, where would we be without the patience of the Lord? Yeah. So we we have every incentive, we pastors, to be gentle, Hmm. understanding, cut people slack, be patient, and just keep going. Yeah, there's there's a word here, I think, for this. Particularly, most of our listeners are in the, the, the United States, the United Kingdom. Apologies to those in, in other parts of the world. Um, but I think for those of us in the West, there is a growing trend among a lot of pastors to just be getting angry with where culture's going. Mm-hmm. And I don't see a biblical justification no, for that. Right. We could be angry at some of the ethical trends we're seeing. We can be angry at some of the harm that has been done to, to people around of us course. because of these worldviews and ideologies. But we're to, we're to preach the word with complete patience. Mm-hmm. Um, when Jesus saw the, the sheep without the shepherd, mm. he had compassion on them in their lostness. He wasn't angry at them for being lost. He was compassionate. When Paul says some will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, mm. they will suffer uh, believing myths. Uh, Chesterton said, it is the first effect of not believing in God that you lose your common sense. Wow. And that never ends well. People yeah. suffer. There are green pastures and still waters where the good shepherd leads his people. And there are um, uh, uh, horrible desert wastes where myths take us. Yeah. People wandering off into those mythologies should not be yelled at or scolded, hmm. but won over with patient gentleness. Paul also talks about, you know, people having itching ears, accumulating for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Um, again, just very telling what human nature is like. We, 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 we choose the truth that suits us. Uh, to suit their own passions. It's a a reminder to me of what Paul said earlier on in chapter 3 about the terrible times where people are lovers of the wrong things. Um, Our our misdirected passions will make us demand teachers that will say what we want to hear. I'm really struck by that because in a church-going culture, some of those people will be in our churches. Yeah, And so this distinction helps me. If in following Christ, I'm doing the things I'd do anyway, Mm. then my Christianity isn't obedience, it's coincidence. Mm. And my true Lord is myself. Wow. And my own preferences and my own inner compass and so forth. And so these self-referential phrases in verse 3 are very true to life. Mm. And how wonderful it is when we stop following ourselves in the name of Jesus and follow Jesus. Yeah. It's very freeing. It's really interesting. Paul is, <laughs> he's just told Timothy to preach the word. He's now giving us a, a few verses on why people are not going to hear the preaching or want it. You would, you would think what he's saying here in verses three and four would be a reason to just sit, sit, sit it out for a, a while. You know, mm-hmm. there's going to be a time where people are, are not going to want to hear what you're saying. So just step back, take a break, wait for that time to pass. And at some point the word will come back in season and then you can re-engage. 
No, people's non-responsiveness is a reason to preach. And somebody said to me once that um, there, there are two signs you should always continue fishing. The first sign is that the fish are biting. The second sign is that the fish aren't biting. Hmm. Either way, both conditions are a sign that you should keep going. And that seems to be the case here. Why do you preach the word? Because it's in season. Why do you preach the word? Because it isn't in season. In both cases, that's the motivation to preach. Hmm. And in verse 5, Paul doesn't say, fulfill people's expectations of you. Hmm. Although we respect what people think and how they feel. It's hmm. important to say that. But there's even a grander calling, fulfill your ministry, hmm. which was declared in the presence of God and yeah. of Christ Jesus. And fulfill your ministry, there is a, a largeness, there is a, a fullness to every pastoral ministry. And it doesn't matter if it's a big church, medium-sized church, small church, fulfill your ministry, what God has called you to. Leave nothing incomplete. Take your ministry as far as you possibly can. Have a blast doing so by God's grace and for his glory. Go fulfill your ministry. And then Paul himself says, that's in effect, that's the very thing I've done. Yeah. And it may not look like success from a worldly point of view oh, yeah. to fulfill your ministry. That's right. I'm curious, he says, do the work of an evangelist in all of that, because we often think of evangelism as being an almost entirely different set of skills yeah. and gifts and tasks than being the, do the work of, of pastoral ministry. Um, Glenn Scrivener, who's a, a wonderful evangelist based in the UK once, he once said that actually evangelism is pastoring unbelievers, mm -hmm. just as pastoring is evangelizing believers. Huh. Well said. And uh, I've never thought of myself as an evangelist, but when Glenn said that, I thought, oh yeah, I feel like I can do that. I feel mm. like I can, I, can, I can be someone who is trying to pastor those who are, are not yet believers. I'm always troubled by that phrase, do the work of an evangelist, because I'm so academic and clunky and, you know, and I just feel like I've, I'm all thumbs in evangelism. I, I just, I'm so lousy at it. But if I put that, that, that charge, do the work of an evangelist, in the category, get the word out. Yeah. Okay. I can help that cause. Yeah. I can contribute to that. And, and the longer I live, Sam, the more my heart yearns to reach the masses, hmm. we must, we pastors, must, uh, whatever denomination we're located in, we must never be elitist. Hmm. And if you're smart enough and educated enough and sharp enough, then this ministry at this church will make sense to you. That's not the heart of Jesus. Our heart should be, let's go just wrap our arms around as many people as we possibly can. Ordinary people, hmm. which is 99% of the human race, and it's me. Yeah, People with all the ordinary problems, all the ordinary distractions, hmm. who people who offer you very little for your big deal ministry, hmm. people who just need to be loved, helped, prayed for, listened to, and introduced to Jesus. Go wrap your arms around. Reach the masses. Now, you know, George Whitfield did that in the First Great Awakening. Hmm. And in the Second Great Awakening, all those pastors, the First Great Awakening, 1740-1742, of course, was led by these sparkling, huge personalities, John Wesley and 
George Whitfield and others. The Second Great Awakening, 1800, 1825, maybe 30, was a slow burn detonation of blessing in local churches through ordinary pastors. Hmm. And the Second Great Awakening in the USA uh, sort of re-Christianized the nation and upgraded the culture. Child labor laws came in. The um, uh, abolitionist movement got traction, and Mm. it had tremendous social advantages. But it's because, by God's grace, through an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the pastors of ordinary churches all up and down the east coast of of what was then the new nation of America, those pastors were under such mighty blessing, they reached the masses. Mm. I long for that. I'd love to give my life to that. Yeah. Uh, Ray, we both live in Nashville. Nashville is growing quicker than its infrastructure. Yeah, so that's true. Traffic's getting worse. And one of my sins is just inordinate frustration when I'm in traffic. Hmm. It's not like I'm late and have to get somewhere where I've, I've got, you know, life-saving medicine in the back of the car that someone desperately needs. I just don't like being stuck in traffic. So one of the things I'm I'm trying to tell myself now is when I'm in a traffic jam, I'm to look at that 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 mass of cars ahead of me, and from now on I'm going to try and think of four verse five, do the work of an, of an evangelist. Mm-hmm. Actually, the traffic jam is a blessing, yes, because God is bringing more people into Nashville, yes. so that we don't have to go very far to do the work of, of reaching the masses. Let's never forget, a city is never a mere accident of history. A city is a divine strategy for the building of the kingdom of Christ and yeah. the glory of his name in this generation and the next. Yeah, We can believe that. Mm. So, um, the this glorious task the Lord has laid upon us and it's such a privilege. And I'm, and the other thing that stands out here, just briefly, Sam, is, is how Paul lays his life down. Yeah. He dies magnificently. Yeah. I really want to do that, Sam. I just don't want to die well. I want to die magnificently by God's grace for his glory. Because you and I both believe, every pastor listening to this believes, we are not just available to the Lord, we are expendable for the Lord. Yes. There's something about, Paul is not complaining here. I'm already being poured out. Hmm. This is not sort of whinging. It's not sort of, you know, I'm just so tired and this is too demanding and I have no energy left. Paul is like, this is great. This is what I'm here for. We're we're here to be poured out. Yes. It's an offering to the Lord. And when we have handed ourselves clear over to Christ, that changes how we die. Yeah. It makes death into the culmination of our life purpose. Sam, I believe because we're in covenant together, as we are all of us together, covenanted in Christ, I literally owe you, I morally owe you, not only that I will live well by God's grace for his glory, but that I will die well and even magnificent, magnificently by God's grace and for his glory. The final statement I want to make is that Jesus is not just worth living for, he's worth dying for. You and I both feel that. Every pastor listening to this feels that. The Apostle Paul describes it. He's describing his own final thoughts in the final days of his life. You're absolutely right. I'm so struck. There's no self-pity here. No panic. There's a sense of... (laughs) I'm thinking American football, Sam. Of course you are. (laughs) A guy scores a touchdown. He spikes the ball, you know, and he runs up to the fans that are that are closest to the end zone. He's high-fiving them, and he's rejoicing. 
actually, I'd love to die that way. Yeah. There's a um, really extraordinary thing, and I think it's in John's Gospel, where John makes that editorial comment that Jesus was speaking of the death by which Peter would glorify God. Yes. Even a, even death can bring glory to God. Yes. Paul says, if we live for the Lord, we also die for the Lord. Yeah. Live and die. Okay, so, you know, just one other thing that stands out to me, Sam, and that is in verse 8, Paul writes, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, by the way, isn't it great that Nero was not Paul's final judge? Yeah. Nero was a moron. He didn't understand anything. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Yeah, Paul is, again, he does not... There's a uniqueness to his apostleship. He knows that. That's a sort of category that is it is it is not for, for every believer. But Paul is so quick to not make himself the special case. Yeah. Well, a war to me, not only to me, but also to all. This is this is for all of us. Yes. And I'm struck it doesn't say to all who have believed in his appearing. You know, eschatology matters. Yeah. Okay, so let's have our views. But what really sets us apart is that we love his appearing. We love the thought of Jesus coming back. We love the thought of the healing of the nations, as the Revelation speaks of it, and the glory of Christ covering the earth as the waters cover the sea and so forth. That's an interesting bookend to the opening of chapter 3, where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, not lovers of God, um, and so on, contrasted with those who, who love the appearing of Jesus. Maybe, oh, I'm just, I'm thinking out loud here. Let me toss this out, see what you think. Mm. Maybe the greatest and final statement we can make in this life is not that we we love what we've done for the Lord, though we do, we're grateful, we Mm. feel so privileged. Not ultimately that we love our churches and our mission fields, though we do. Mm but that we love what's coming next. Yeah. We love the Lord's appearing. We love his second coming. Yeah. It's not just a theological item. It's what our hearts long for. Yeah. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is yeah. in heaven. That's a love cry coming yes. out of our hearts. Yeah, there's there's something so transcendent and eclipsing about God's ways that we we just want to get out of the way of it. Yeah. Well, we, uh, as always, are grateful to, to Crossway. We've been thinking in this passage about the, the significance of, of preaching. Um, we have a love of expository preaching. There's a place for other kinds of preaching as well, but we, we love the idea of sh- taking out of the, the passages what is what has been put there by the Lord for us to see. So a book I'm looking forward to reading is, is one by Crossway um, called The Beauty and Power of Biblical Exposition, Preaching the Literary artistry and genres of the bible and i'm looking forward to that because that that subtitle hits on something i don't often see given being given attention in in preaching which is that the form of god's word is part of the revelation of it yes the bible the the narratives of scripture for example are written not just to record facts one after another 
but they are, I see the word artistry in the, in the title, mm. the beauty and power of biblical exposition, preaching the literary artistry and genres of the Bible. The narratives of scripture are crafted mm. as beautiful works of art. Yeah. And you're right, Sam, that is part of the message, for example. And the two authors, Doug O'Donnell and Leland Riken. Leland Riken started teaching English Lit at Wheaton College in 1968, for crying out loud. Wow. When I was a student there, the man understands literature. I, I was reading uh, some things he, he, he wrote recently about the Samson narrative hmm. in the book of Judges. And it opened my eyes to the Samson story, what's actually happening in the literature as such that helps me understand what God is really saying about Samson and about all of us yeah. through that narrative. So Crossway keeps hitting home runs with every book they publish. And here is something that every pastor might really enjoy. And uh, it might be a, a treasure trove of new insights into scripture and for preaching as well. Yeah. Well, thanks, folks, for listening. Ray, thanks for your time as always, and we'll see you next time.